0: Because food, especially fruits and vegetables, are supposed to be produced locally and regionally. You're not supposed to be able to ship broccoli from California to New Hampshire. You're not supposed to be able to send water six or seven or 800 miles from Northern California to the deserts of Southern California in order to grow lettuce, which is simply a canteen for stolen water and put it on a truck and drive it to Montreal so that people can have lettuce. Okay. We know we're not supposed to do that. And we need to be the people who say, no, bullshit. This is not food. This is an investment vehicle and you're not supposed to eat it. We need to create a food system based on the idea that food comes from the soil and it's produced pretty close to where you're standing when you eat it.
1: Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. Coming to you this week from Santa Cruz, California, I'm at a real friend's home who has housed me as we visit with farmers and friends throughout the region. You just heard from one of those friends, David Weinstein. He's a longtime organic produce distributor in the region. David is one of many people who we're interviewing that helped to build this organic movement that we're so fiercely trying to protect and improve upon. So many lives have been dedicated uh, to building the organic movement out here in California. You'll hear David admit some wrong turns along the way and his thoughts for the future as he speaks to my Real Organic Project co-director, Dave Chapman.
2: All right, welcome to the Real Organic Podcast, and I'm very pleased today to be talking with David Weinstein. David is a a recent friend. I, I haven't met David actually in person ever, but I had a fascinating conversation with him about his many years in the organic produce trade welcome david Um, thank you very much it's a pleasure to be here yeah i'm i'm very much looking forward to the conversation so could you i'm I'm not giving a big intro because i'd like you to tell your story so could you tell people you've been in in the selling and distributing of organic produce for a long time could you tell us about that Yes, Dave,
0: it's a pleasure to have an opportunity to share a little bit of history with people. I really never started buying and selling organic produce. Instead, in Southern California in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was something of a movement that was called the alternative food system. And the alternative food system was a vision that people had of creating a community of producers and distributors and cooks and eaters and the unsung, unacknowledged people that clean up after all of us when we're done that was more communal, more egalitarian, more equal, and more in harmony with how the planet actually works than the conventional food system that we were all familiar with. And the group of us that were involved in this, building this organic alternative food system divided ourselves up by what was most convenient. So those of us who felt drawn to the land became farmers. Those of us who lived in the city started food co-ops. And those of us who fell somewhere in between became truckers and distributors. And it really was a matter of dividing up the work that we all did to build a community that was capable of nurturing ourselves and our children and our families. And I happened to wander into the distributing side. So I became part of a group of people who operated. A warehouse that distributed food, first of all, to food co ops in Southern California. And because we were where all the food was, we got quite good at it. And in those days, people from around the country noticed that those people in Southern California were really good at supplying themselves with fresh organic produce. And they came to us and said, Could you help us? Do in our area what you're doing in your area. And we said, sure. Out of that was born a wholesale company that supplied food co-ops and food co-op warehouses and the fledgling natural foods grocery stores that weren't cooperatively owned with fresh organic produce. And without quite realizing it, we began to construct a national network of producers and consumers of fresh organically grown produce. And by the time that we were done, we were bringing apples and pears from the Pacific Northwest. We were bringing potatoes and onions and carrots from Colorado. We were bringing organic produce from throughout California, turning it around, feeding people in Southern California and feeding people around the country. And that was my beginning in this uh, movement and so for me it was never business it was never about buying and selling it was really about building a community of people who could work together and create something better and something new
2: and uh, my my sense is that uh and my own experience is that you are not unique in that that this was a movement
0: It's really important what you just said. It's really profound and it's very moving to me. It happens that the two of us are here today and that I am in the interviewees chair, but it's really just an accident. There was a very large number of people and there still is a very large number of people who could just as well be sitting here as I am, who know all the same things that I know, who have lived through and done the very same things that I have done and who are as passionate and articulate and um, well-prepared to say all the things that that we're going to talk about today. And I'm really not here for myself. I'm really here to represent all of those people who over the years have sacrificed and struggled and sweated to bring to life a food system more in harmony with the planet and more in harmony with how this beautiful place that we have the good fortune to inhabit really works. And I'm really here more than anything to do honor to those people, to acknowledge them and to say that the food that you eat now the organic food that you eat the organic products that you see when you go into your grocery store those are the testimony to a crusade of people who lived their whole lives to build something better and many of whom have gone on to retire or to die and who will never be remembered who will be nameless but who gave their life to this to the soil who gave their life to the community that nurtured them, who made it possible for us to be here doing this today. And I am here, first of all, and most importantly, to do honor to that crusade of people.
2: So, David, it's so, you know, our our memories are so short, and young people come along, and the way things are now seems like they were always that way. But they weren't always that way, were they? So you've seen a lot of change. I'm sure when you started and when I started, you couldn't go to a a supermarket and buy anything organic, could you?
0: It's very funny. My beard is now older than a majority of the people with whom I work every single day. (laughs) When we started, We had an old, all but abandoned warehouse with no docks so that we built a dock out of wood to load and unload trucks, which meant that every time we rolled a pallet jack across that dock, we generated huge splinters that could go into your arms or legs, okay? Hadn't yet really discovered the concept of boxes. And I'm not kidding. We've got organic produce in recycled banana boxes, which said fumigated with thiabenzodol in big letters on the side. We didn't know what thiabenzodol meant and we didn't think it was important at the time. We got our lettuce delivered to us, fresh picked and beautiful lettuce in used Safeway shopping bags. And that's how we started. That's where all of this came from. Okay. I remember the day that my very best customer who became personal friends and we went on vacation together, called me up and said, you know, we've always bought oranges from you field Run." the pretty ones, the ugly ones, the big ones, the little ones, the misshapen ones, the ones with scars, the ones without. We bought them all the same in the box. But our customers don't want that anymore. Now they want the oranges separated into fancy grade and choice grades. And it broke my heart because it was the end of an era in which the consumers of organic produce understood that in order to enable the growers of organic produce to make a living. They needed to buy all of the edible fruit. And now they were saying, no, we don't want to do that anymore. Now we just want the pretty ones. That's the history. That's the history.
2: So we're going to look at a complicated ball of yarn here because a lot of things have succeeded. A lot of things that we dreamed of have happened and a lot of things that we had have been lost. So could you talk about what we've, what we've gotten and what we've lost?
0: When we started, you could probably write down the names of all of the organic farms there were in the United States on one sheet of paper. And you wouldn't need very many zeros to total up the total number of acres that were being farmed organically at that time. Now, millions and millions and millions of acres of land are being farmed organically. And that's an immense, victory for the planet millions and millions and millions of acres are being farmed without toxic chemicals and that's a legacy that all of us who have given our lives to this movement can take with us to wherever we go next with a sense of accomplishment it's wonderful i was in wrangle alaska And because of the work that I do, we decided to go to the grocery store. And we went into the grocery store in Wrangell, Alaska, which is on a little island in Southeast Alaska. It's the absolute end of the supply chain. But in that grocery store, in that IGA grocery store, there was a section of the produce department devoted to organic produce. You can get good organically grown produce and other organic products, even in Wrangell, Alaska. I know people now who are exporting organic food to Abu Dhabi and to uh, Kuala Lumpur. When we started, we couldn't even imagine that anyone in those places would know what organic produce was. But now they're demanding it and they're finding ways to get access to it. This is a profound positive change in people's lives all over the world. In the United States, you can buy organic produce in Costco, you can buy organic produce in Walmart, you can buy it in every grocery store in the country. This means that people who would never have dreamed of having access. To this quality of food, now have access to it. We are improving the lives and health of people all over the country, all over the planet, every single day because we can produce organic food in a way that reaches everyone. This is wonderful. This is glorious. This is something that we can take pride in, and we can know. In detail, just how far short we have fallen from the aspirations that we held when we started. The standards for organic produce now in the United States are completely inadequate. The supply of organic produce is not controlled by small and medium sized producers supplying a network of independent, locally owned stores. Organic produce for the most part is controlled by monopoly producers who supply monopoly retailers, leaving out the small, local, medium-sized producers and distributors. Even though with all of the access that, still ex- that does exist, there are huge populations in this country and around the world who do not have access to organic food, who do not control the choices and the decisions that are made about the food that they eat. And these populations reflect the racial inequality that exists in this country and around the world. We have failed in enormous, important, profound ways to grow and distribute the kind of food that we dreamed about to the kind of people who are entitled to eat that food. So there is an enormous amount that we can take pride in with complete justification. But that pride exists in the context of equally enormous failures on our part.
2: Well, I like to say it slightly differently, which is that we are failing rather than that we have failed, because I don't think the story is over yet. But maybe it is. And, you know, that's, that's the question What went wrong, and and how do we fix it? How do we actually continue to build the world that we were trying to build in the first place?
0: As a certified organic old person, I am very aware of the tendency of old people to get just a little bit arrogant about their accomplishments. And I want to speak for the old people and say that we need to take responsibility both for what we have achieved and for what we have failed to achieve. It's not anybody else. It was us that achieved these things and, and failed to achieve. So to me, the hopeful sign is that there is a new generation of people in their 20s and 30s and 40s who are coming into this movement who recognize both its successes and its failures and are committed, in my opinion, to moving forward on the things that we were unable to achieve. And I feel that it's the responsibility of those of us who are the old people not to be arrogant, but to welcome this new generation, to encourage them and support them. And if they find anything of value in what we have to say, to teach them. Because I think that there will be another movement to build an alternative food system, to build a more just, a more humane, a more ecologically rational food system in the next generation. As you and I talked last week, there's lots of things we can do on the ground. We can farm differently, we can distribute differently, we can retail differently, we can eat differently. But fundamentally, the food system that exists now is a political decision. And if we want to change the food system, that will be a political change before it is an agricultural change. And so we need to encourage the new generation to look beyond farming, to look beyond wholesaling, to look beyond retailing, to look beyond cooking, to look beyond eating, but to look at the structure of the society in which we all live and make the political changes that we need to make to empower local communities, to empower regional communities, to empower small and medium-sized farmers and empower independent wholesalers and retailers to supply them. These things are facing very profound political obstacles that need to be removed in order for us to move forward. But we can't wait for that. We can't wait for that. So for me, in preparation for our conversation today, I've been asking myself, what can we do, what can we do? And I think that we need to recognize that we live in a capitalist economy. Um, There's a version of the golden rule that goes, he who has the gold makes the rules. And in order for us to begin to make the kinds of changes that we need, We need to bring capital back into the hands of local communities and regional economies and small and medium-sized farmers and wholesalers and retailers. How do we do that? This is not a new question. This is an old question. It was raised most memorably by Abby Hoffman, which is a name out of the distant past who is generally regarded as a cartoon figure now. But Abby Hoffman recognized the importance of being able to control the way that we got our food. So he spent a lot of time organizing food co ops. And the premise of the food co ops that he organized was that they would be operated with substantial volunteer labor. Why? Because when people donate their labor to an enterprise, that's capital, that's sweat. Equity. That's a way of creating value that doesn't depend on a bank. It depends on our willingness to work together. And I think we need to begin to remember the enormous value that can be created when we work together to create institutions of value in our communities. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that all of our enterprises are financial enterprises. We exchange what we grow for money. We exchange the services we provide for money. And we don't take that money and put it under a mattress. We put it in a bank. And almost always, that is a privately owned for-profit bank headquartered somewhere on Wall Street who takes the wealth that we create and uses uh, that wealth to create institutions that make life on our level harder. So I suggest that as a first step, we begin to patronize the credit unions that exist to serve local communities and where they don't exist to begin to create credit unions so that the cash that we acquire stays in the communities in which we live and is used to create institutions that serve our own local needs. And as we begin to extract our wealth from the for-profit banking system and put it in institutions that we control, that we direct, we create the resource that we need to underwrite the growth of the independent retail stores, the independent wholesalers that supply them, and the small and medium-sized agricultural enterprises that are the foundation for a just food system. But the premise is to begin to acquire the capital that we need to build the kinds of institutions and businesses that we envision. And my generation of food activists knew this and failed to build these kinds of institutions. And I think that we need to encourage a new generation to take up where we left off and make this kind of step.
2: All right. I, I do want to go back to what can we do because it is the huge question, but I want to stop there and go back because I'm, I'm really interested. Life happens and we make choices and we're all part of these large cultural waves. And you're suggesting that um, we started with a vision and somehow we failed to fulfill that vision. This is common for being human. But I'm curious, where do you think we went wrong? Like there, there was an organic movement and there still is an organic movement. And what I see is that movement is waking up again and coming together because they suddenly realized, wait, this wasn't what we planned. But how did we lose it in the first place? What happened? In a
0: maybe 1979, something like that. I went to a meeting in a little house somewhere I think maybe in Venice, California. And it was a meeting of people from all around the state of California who were trying to figure out whether we should or what we should do about passing a law in California To enforce standards for what we meant by organic produce, organic farming. This law would be passed a couple of years later, it would become the California Organic Law, and in many ways, it was the inspiration for the federal law that was passed in 1990. And we debated all day about what we wanted from this law. And there were a whole range of concerns about the environment, about labor, about land ownership, about supporting family farms, about pesticides, about fertilizer runoff, about the impact on on communities. There was a huge list of things that people were concerned about. Racism, food justice, all kinds of things went into that discussion. And by the end of the day, we come to the conclusion that as a practical political matter, that is something that we thought we could take to the legislature and actually get passed. Our best opportunity was really to focus on pesticides because pesticides were something that people were aware of. It had a boogeyman kind of quality. You don't want to be on the side saying we should use more poison, more pesticides. Everyone could generally agree that less pesticides were a good idea. So we thought that if we crafted a bill that really focused largely on a kind of agriculture that was free of pesticides, we could get that law passed. When we passed the California law, to me, that was the original organic sin. And when that led to the national law, which incorporated that in- attenuated vision of organics into federal law and the regulations that flowed from that law created the foundation for a national market in organic produce. And we loved that because all of a sudden our stores got bigger. We had more customers and conventional retailers all around the country began to ask, is this something we can carry? Can we do this? And we said, as the trade, as producers and as distributors, of course you can. We'll supply you. And we knew better. We all knew better. We knew that when we opened the door to the conventional retailer, we were putting an end to the viability of an organic food system premised on small independent retailers and small and medium-sized wholesalers to supply them, and small and medium-sized producers to supply those wholesalers. We knew we were putting an end to it. But they would order whole pallets at a time, which was unheard of. Look at the volume we could sell. Look at how high our sales volumes went. Look how many people we could hire. Look how fast things were growing. It was wonderful. And when in 2010 and 2012 and 2015, those conventional retailers who had been such loyal and dependable customers said to us that their conventional suppliers were now prepared to supply them, and thank you very much, but they no longer needed our services, nor did they need the services of the growers who supplied us, we were shocked. We were amazed. We felt betrayed. Because between about 1990 and 2015, we had persuaded ourselves that the conventional food system was our friend, was our ally, which, that it shared our vision of an organic future. And when that turned out not to be true, we were devastated. But we all knew better we just liked it.
2: Do you think that if we, and we is a, a loose term, but this, this large mass of, I will call pioneers, who, who really um, developed this notion of organic farming and organic food, if, if that group of pioneers had said no, we must have, it's not just about even the food, it's about the whole system that supports the food, that distributes the food. Do you think that th- that would be a different story?
0: Well, it would have been a different story for sure. It would have been a different story. I'm not sure, that, but what we wouldn't be sitting here now Talking about the fact that we've spent 40 years at this and we're still farming one or two acres or five acres here and there. And there really isn't much of an organic movement. There really aren't a lot of acres being farmed organically. There aren't a lot of people eating organic food. There aren't a lot of people able to make their living growing and buying and selling organic food. And what in the world can we do to? you know, create some sense of scale. So I don't think that it's a matter of right or wrong. I think that we have accomplished a very great deal that is very likely going to last a long time. And I think that's great. But I also think that in the process, we left a lot of things undone that need to be done. And now we need, without any sense of guilt or shame or embarrassment or criticism to say, okay, we did that. Now we need to take another step. I think it's a not an either or, it's a more and. Thank you.
2: That, that, that's really helpful, David. So I want to go to where we go. But first, I, I, I want to, there are a couple things that you said in an earlier conversation I wanted to touch on. One that I thought was important was your description of that bumper sticker, um, support your local organic farmer. Could you talk about what your reaction was to seeing that bumper sticker?
0: It's probably true everywhere, but I haven't been everywhere. I know it's true in the United States that we believe in fairy tales. We believe in myths. They're charming. They're really nice. We tell them to our children, and our children giggle with delight, and it's great but we never tell them that they're not true. Consequently, we grow up believing in myths. And because almost none of us are farmers, one of the myths that we believe, I call it the old McDonald myth. We believe that somewhere in the country, whatever that is, is a man with a pitchfork, and his name is McDonald and he is old. And he is where all our food comes from. It's amazing what he does. We fetishize farmers. We turn them into mythological creatures because we don't know any. What do I mean? When I was working in the food co-op in 1979, and I was in the produce department putting out the produce, a man came up to me, very nice, member of the co-op, very friendly, very cheerful. And he looked at me and he said, how's Al? And I said, excuse me? He said, you know, Al, how's he doing? And I said, "Um, do we know each other? No, he said, but I was wondering how Al was doing. And I said, Al who? And he pointed to a box. And in the box were were a, a pile of cucumbers. And on the side of the box, it said cucumbers, Al Steindorf. Farms. And he had read on the side of the box the name Al Steindorf, who he'd never met, but felt like he had a personal relationship with this person because he saw his name on the side of a box. He didn't know whether Al Steindorf was any more real than Aunt Jemima, but in his mind, he had a personal relationship with Al Steindorf. We, we, We imagine that we know things about farmers that we don't really. And so we put bumper stickers on our cars saying support our organic farmers. And God knows organic farmers need all the help they can get, especially the kind of farmers that the people who put those bumper stickers on their cars were thinking about. But it's a system. It's a system. It's not just the farmer, it's the retailer. It's the store where you get your food, okay? It's the nice people in the cities who stand behind the tables at the farmer's market selling the food, who live in the city because the farmers aren't gonna drive four and five hours to stand behind a table all day so they can drive home another four or five hours. They have someone in town who works for them at the farmer's market. It's the distributors, it's the truck drivers. Okay, And all of those people work together very, very hard to bring us the food that we eat. And to me, I would love a bumper sticker that said, support your local food system, support your local wholesaler, support your local independent truck driver, support your local ag worker, rather than a a bumper sticker that contributes to the maintenance of the old McDonald myth of the fetishized idealized imaginary farmer out in a field with a with a pitchfork from whom all bounty flows. Yeah. Yeah. Now, having said that, I want to make another point. When I started, we really we were a movement and we believed in good guys and bad guys and we were the good guys and con- the conventional folks were the bad guys. And the conventional wholesalers were bad guys. And they knew we were bad guys. And God only knows the conventional farmers who used all those pesticides. They were terrible. And we knew this. We had never met any of them. We hadn't been out on the farm. But we knew this. We were sure. Well, I'm not too bright. So it took me way longer than it should have. And made way more, many more trips to the country than it should have. But I got to know a lot of farmers. I got to know a lot of organic farmers. I got to know a lot of farmers in the process of becoming organic. I got to know a lot of farmers who were thinking about organic and I got to know a lot of conventional farmers. And what I found, not the guys, you know, not the investment guys, but the guys who do the farming, they're all good farmers. They all care about the soil. They all care about the land. They all care about where they where they live. They're all devoted to farming in a way that passes on to their children and their grandchildren the very best that they can do. And the real tragedy is not that there's good guys and bad guys. The real tragedy is that there are folks who want to do a good job farming that we haven't reached yet, but they're all good people. And I just want to give a shout out to everybody, whatever they do, who busts their ass on the soil trying to grow the food we eat, because we owe them all a great debt. that's just my opinion.
2: All right. Thank you. So this takes me to my next question, I think. The famous big tent. Um, There's there's a lot of talk in the organic industry about building a big tent, that they want organic to be a big tent. And that exactly what you're saying, that we're not going to be judgmental. Anybody that can qualify possibly for the organic certification becomes by that definition part of the organic movement and, and one of the things that i've seen is in the process of building this big tent we have so undermined what it is we're trying to do that it's almost unrecognizable you you've seen this a lot what what are your thoughts
0: I think we have a more or less infinite capacity for kidding ourselves. It's fantastic. It's a great human gift the ability to look at and listen to absolute nonsense and go, oh, yeah, uh huh. Um, when I started, we were very interested in what the difference was between organic and conventional. So we made up all kinds of things. And one of the things that we took a lot of pride in. Was that organic farmers didn't monocrop. Okay, conventional farmers monocropped. Organic farmers, no, we had diversified, you know, plant plantings with interplanting and intercropping and and all kinds of subtle relationships between beneficial plants and food plants and all this kind of stuff. Okay, fine. It's pretty clear. You know, you go out in the country and you see, you know, a field five hundred acres of broccoli. You're pretty sure that ain't organic broccoli, folks. That's monocropping. That's conventional agriculture. That's pretty clear. And somehow, (laughs) magic. Now, we have 1,000-acre plots of carrots. We have hundreds and hundred-acre plots of broccoli and cauliflower and celery and lettuce and all all kinds of goofy things that we're just monocropping the hell out of. And we certify them all organic, like all the most highest integrity certifiers going, oh, yeah, that's organic. And you go like, no, it ain't it's not complicated. It's not hard to understand. You know, it's not subtle when you plant a thousand acres of carrots, it doesn't matter how many, um, you know, flowers you plant around the borders to attract insects. It ain't organic folks. You're kidding yourself. We've been doing that now for 30 years. Okay. And we need to stop. We need to say, you know, love you a lot. That ain't happening. Okay. We put, we grow organic, blueberries in Chile and Peru, okay? On land that used to be owned locally and support a network of small farms that supplied the food to the people in those countries in a sustainable way. And we took all of that land, kicked all those people off, hired a few of them back as farm labor, sent the rest of them to to live in cities in miserable conditions so that we could grow organic blueberries. And when we're all done with the organic blueberries, we put them on a boat and we leave them sit there for two weeks while they they get to the United States. And then we put them in a warehouse and then we put them on a truck for four or five days to the other side of the country where they go sit in another warehouse for a while. And then they go and sit in a grocery store for a while. And when they get to you, it's amazing. They're organic how in the world did that happen? Okay. Whose idea of organic is counter-seasonal blueberries from Chile and Peru and Argentina? What, What vision of organic does that comport with? Okay. Anybody with half a brain knows that's not organic, but you know what? We've been doing that forever. It's all good, right? It's all fine. We grow apples. We grow apples. Apples, you may have noticed, are seasonal. So what do we do? We grow these organic apples. We put them in rooms larger than a football field and as high as a five-story building. We suck all the oxygen out of the entire room as a result of giant fossil fuel-powered machines so that the apples don't have the oxygen they need to continue to metabolize. We leave them in there six or eight or 10 months. We pull them out. We ship them all over the country, and we call the result organic. Who are you kidding? What version of organic is that? Okay. We know that's not organic. But we call it organic why because that kind of technology monocropping ca storage import logistics are the foundation of a centralized monopolized conventional food system that is now consistent with our vision of what organic produce is we know it's not organic we've always known it's not organic okay and the idea now that a new generation of people can invest in warehouses, 10, 11, 12 stories tall with banks of hydroponic um, production facilities in which they can grow uh, salad greens for crying out loud um, and call the results organic. We know perfectly well it's not organic. It's never been organic, okay? It, it matches no definition of organic, okay? but. What does it do? It gives us a predictable supply of product to sell, okay? It facilitates the normal functioning of a um, centralized, monopolized, investor-driven conventional food system, okay? We know all this stuff. There's no surprise about any of this, okay? And our job, in my opinion, is to say what we are for, okay? What are we for? We're for soil-based agriculture. We're for small-scale production. We're for um, diverse plantings. We're for fresh food. Does that put limitations on what you can do? Absolutely it does. Why? Because food, especially fruits and vegetables, are supposed to be produced locally and regionally. You're not supposed to be able to ship broccoli from California to New Hampshire. You're not supposed to be able to send water six or seven or 800 miles from Northern California to the deserts of Southern California in order to grow lettuce, which is simply a canteen for stolen water and put it on a truck and drive it to Montreal so that people can have lettuce. Okay. We know we're not supposed to do that. And we need to be the people who say, no, bullshit. This is not food. This is an investment vehicle and you're not supposed to eat it. We need to create a food system based on the idea that food comes from the soil and it's produced pretty close to where you're standing when you eat it. And we're supposed to figure out how to feed ourselves with that vision intact and it's my optimistic faith that since we have been doing this in this country for, you know, centuries Without all the technological advances that we have now, my guess is that if we put our mind to it, we can figure out how to feed ourselves all over this country with an abundant supply of fresh fruits and vegetables without having to resort to the kind of um, techno charades that are being promoted as the solution to all our problems. I have no quarrel with people who want to grow food that way. Okay, I really don't because I know them and they're my friends and I respect their intelligence and their judgment and their values and their commitment. I just don't think it's organic.
2: So the things that you're saying are very much uh, in alignment with a real organic project. This is a bunch of farmers who I think pretty much all agree with what you're saying. I'm curious about uh, you were talking about what can we do and And we is a lot of different people, you know, and and Eater has their choices to make and what they do. And a farmer has his or her choices. But I'm curious, there there are, there is the Real Organic Project. There is the regenerative movement. I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I'd like to hear your thoughts. There, you know, there's agroecological movement. Do any of these, to you, provide an umbrella that you're comfortable standing under?
0: I think... that whether it's agroecology or regenerative agriculture or the real organic project, I don't have an issue with any of them. I think that the elephant is enormous. And I think that there's a lot of pieces of the elephant that we can identify and, and say as true. So I don't really feel the need to say This one, not that one, that one, not this one. I think that in the United States, for example, we have a lot to learn from the people in the rest of the world for whom organic is not a product category, but a means of subsistence. And I think that we we have a lot to gain by exposing ourselves to people who treat organic farming as a means to supply themselves with food, rather than as a means for um, achieving a uh, a premium in the marketplace. And I think that's, that's something that's really important. I think that part of the failure that I've talked about has been in my generation, not to emphasize sufficiently the importance of soil building, and of, um, of of farm justice as an integral part of what it means for things to be organic. I know that every single organic farmer that I've ever met understands these things and is engaged with dealing with them. But we as a trade haven't been sufficiently vocal about the importance of these things. And I think it's made an opportunity for regenerative agriculture to come along and claim ownership of things that really rightfully belong to the organic movement, but have been under acknowledged in our drive for market share and exposure. And I think that we need to regard the regenerative agriculture movement as uh, penance for our failure to say what we know to be true and have known all along. I think the real organic movement um, has a big piece of the truth. I think that um, the USDA NOP standards have eroded from the vision that created them. I don't think there's any argument about that. And I think it's really important to be as active at recreating standards that reflect our real values. And I think that's really important, Um, but to me, I think that we live in an era now of pathological selfishness. We have apparently lost the lack, the knack of, looking out for each other. We look out for ourselves, but we don't look out for each other. And I think that moving forward, we're gonna need to reacquire the ability, not just ask what's good for us, what's good for me, what's good for mine, but what's good for my neighbors? What's good for their neighbors? What's good for the neighborhood? What's good for the community? We don't really ask ourselves these questions very much. And I think I was talking to a a dear friend who's much smarter and wiser than me about these similar kinds of questions. And he just knew as a farmer for 40 years that his wholesale customer was his adversary and that dealing with his buyers was a constant competition. Where either he was going to win and get the price he needed, or they were going to win and get the price that they needed, which wasn't going to be the price that he needed. And it was a constant competition. And I think, and I kept saying, well, I don't think that's true. I really don't think that's true. And I think that we need to get back to a time when producers and distributors and consumers understood that each other's well-being was the key to their own well-being and either we all succeed or we all fail and we need to arrange things so that every participant whether it's a producer or a distributor or a consumer is able to thrive that's really the key
2: to me all right david weinstein it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and your experience with us.
0: My pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you will subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review. Please join us next time when our guest is longtime organic dairy farmer Rosie Burroughs of Northern California. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org and get the benefits of being a real friend, including our book club, where you can ask our favorite authors your questions. See you next time.